0: Passage tonight. If you want to open your Bibles, is to Matthew five. Uh, specifically, verses ten through sixteen. I love God's Word. I love the power it has to change us. Uh, we both experience that and read in God's Word that it's powerful. And I love the opportunity to teach it. And I thank you, Stephen, for giving me this opportunity. The reason I picked this passage that I'm going to uh, speak about tonight is. Um, I called my little brother when I was given this opportunity uh, to speak and asked him what he thought I should preach on to the Sunday-nighters of a solid church, and he said, well, you should preach on whatever it is that the Lord's been working on in your heart, and uh, as Jeremy and I have been working through Martin Lloyd-Jones' Sermon on the Mount, this particular uh, section of the Sermon on the Mount has been very convicting to me. That's why we're landing where we are tonight. We're going to read from uh, the beginning of the chapter through verse 16. It says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, This is a searching passage, and uh, as we go through it, Lord, I pray that we would examine ourselves in light of scripture, that we not think more of ourselves than we ought to, and when we see the Characteristics that make up those who are blessed, Lord, that we give you the glory for we know that as a work you have done in and through us. You're an awesome God. You're worthy of uh, much more worship and praise than we give you. Lord, that saddens us, and I pray that uh, you would convict us and compel us to live a life worthy of the gospel. In Christ's name, amen. I'll give you a little uh, setting here Jesus, in his earthly ministry, had already started to call the disciples. We know from the first chapter of John and the previous chapter here in Matthew that at least six of the disciples were with him at this point, perhaps all 12. After calling them unto himself, he had set out into Galilee, and he was performing miracles and teaching. (laughs) Naturally... Uh, somebody performing a lot of miracles and proclaiming a message like him started to amass a large crowd. Actually, use used the plural there, so there's was large crowds. And from all over the place, they were coming from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. When Jesus saw these large crowds, as we see in verse 1, he went up on the mountain, and he sat down, and he began to teach. Jesus taught the sermon as one having authority. He was unlike the scribes who would reference other great teachers as their backing for their message. Jesus repeatedly corrected the men of old and their ancient teachings, and he showed the essence of God's law and exposed the misuse and the misunderstanding of it. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says that people uh, noticed him or recognized him as one who preached with authority. The theme, if you would, of the Sermon on the Mount, at least this is what I have gathered from it, this first part specifically we're going to go over is encouragement. See, Judaism had become uh, wrong at this time. The Pharisees had added laws had uh, misunderstood and taught false doctrine. But there were people, like Philip, who when Jesus called, he said there was no guile in him, that were following Christ. And while the religious system of that day said he was wrong, Jesus told him, you are right, you were going to inherit the kingdom. Another theme of it would be the denouncing of what Judaism has become. Let's start with the word blessed. As Pastor Mike would say, there's been much spilled ink over this word. I think the text uh, indicates this brief definition. It's those who have found favor with God. Those who are recipients of his saving grace. Let's look at a few of them before we get to verses 10 through 16. We need to understand who we are if we're among the blessed a.k.a. believer so we will willfully and joyfully endure persecution. I don't think I'm the only one here that often forgets who they are chosen by God, set aside for his own possession. I exist uh, to make him known, to glorify him, to obey him, to enjoy him. I need a constant reminder of this. Verse 3 reads, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. This one's essential. Everything that Jesus said was intentional and purposeful. There's a order here for a reason, and because this is a foundational or fundamental characteristic of those who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. The passage tells us that there is nobody in Heaven, or in the kingdom of heaven, who is not poor in spirit. As believers, we acknowledge Jesus as king now, right? We willfully submit to him. But there's a future kingdom where we will be joint heirs with Christ and we will uh, one day be with him forever. So, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? In short, it means to be emptied of oneself. Contrary to the world, who makes much of oneself, to be poor in spirit is to be empty of oneself. It is to have no delusion of merit within you. If you talk to people, sometimes within the church, but a lot of times on the street, and you ask them on what grounds God will uh, accept them into heaven, it is because they are a good person. The person who is poor in spirit will not have that answer. He knows he's not a good person. He knows that his sin is a reflection of who he is, and that's a sinner. He's not just a good guy who makes mistakes. When people say things like that, they call God and his word a liar. Isaiah understood this. He saw the beauty of God. Now, what did he say? He said, I'm a man who is undone. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips amongst the people who are unclean. When we see God for who He is, we will have this same uh, outlook on ourselves. The lack of poverty of spirit indicates that one has never faced God. The good news of this verse is those who are poor in spirit will inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's awesome. The second one says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourning over sin is just not an acknowledgment that what you did was wrong. That's an intellectual assent. That's not mourning. Mourning over sin is not mourning over the consequences caused by your sin. I wish I wouldn't have got caught because look how things are now. Mourning over sin is when one recognizes that God has the right to govern his life. And they're truly sorry because they have sinned against God. The good news is, and this is how you can tell if your mourning over sin is biblical, is biblical mourning over sin results in repentance. Does the scripture not teach that? This very verse does. It says, those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When we mourn over our sin, we see it as God does. It results in repentance, 2 Corinthians 7.10, and it leads to what? Forgiveness and reconciliation with God. Biblical mourning over sin results in being comforted by experiencing forgiveness and reconciliation with God. This is a very searching section of scripture. I would ask you to ask yourself, does sin bother me? Or does just when people know I sin bother me? Does other people's sin bother you? Not because they've offended you, but because they have offended God. Too often, my shoes are more like that of the Pharisee when he looked at the tax collector. And he thought much of himself because he wasn't as bad as other people he knew. The good news is, we uh, heard 1 John 1, 9 this morning, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thirdly, it says, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. A true recognition of oneself will result in a humble, meek, gentle spirit. When you see yourself before God and you realize you have no merit of your own, to be accepted by him, much less to be blessed by him. Uh, When you realize that you're sinful and God is gracious and he loved me in spite of me, that will result in humility and a gentle spirit. This can be evidenced in your life by somebody who uh, doesn't seek the spotlight or doesn't demand to be heard or isn't running around making sure everybody knows what they have done. A lot of times we see humility and we don't understand it because we're not familiar with it. We see humble people and we think that person is weak or quiet or lacking in personality. We need to hold every thought captive and believe the best, especially in regards to one who claims to be long to God our Father. Jesus tells his audience that the blessed are those who Hunger for or strongly desire that which is righteous? Do we want to do what is right because God changed us and we have a new nature? Or do we want to do the right thing to feel good about ourselves? I know these questions are prying. But I believe that was the intent of Jesus as his audience was made up of both those who were part of the kingdom those who were not religious at all, but were there to observe the miracles and hopefully uh, be entertained. And, of course, the Pharisees, who he was denouncing with these very uh, claims. The one who will receive mercy is the one who shows mercy to others. To quote Art Zernia, he said, Jesus did not just feel for us. He took the necessary actions to relieve our distress. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Mercy is not sympathizing for somebody and not helping them. We see this in the book of James. The behavior is condemned. Are we merciful towards others? Do we seek to relieve their distress? The pure in heart simply means this. Undivided loyalty for God. Those who are pure in heart are not trying to serve two masters. They know who the king is. And while they struggle against the flesh, they're not a slave to it. The pure in heart shall see God. It's awesome. Probably going to say that a few more times. Verse 9. The peacemaker is not a quarrelsome person. By very nature of the word, one who makes peace cannot be antagonistic himself. The peacemaker seeks to be at peace with all men. And the peace with all men is not just an absence of conflict. That's worldly peace. Hey, we're not butting heads right now, so we're at peace. No, biblical peace is to get along with all men. Not to mean to engage in what they do, but to uh, coexist in a beneficial way with men. The peacemaker desires men to be at peace with each other and men to be at peace with God. Romans 5.1 tells us how that happens. It says, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I always thought that verse should have an exclamation point at the end of it. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So a biblical peacemaker, guess what he does? He shares the gospel. He desires to see men reconciled to a God. He understands that in their natural state, they're objects of wrath. And he knows that through embracing of the gospel, they can and will be saved. This brings me to the passage I want to talk to you a little bit more in depthly tonight. Often I think to myself, even though I just stated it's not that peace is absence of conflict. And it's easy for me to share the gospel with a stranger, but when it comes to family and friends, I, I draw back, knowing that they're in the same danger as people that I don't know, but I don't want the persecution, as weak as the persecution might be. I prefer just to continue along in life, plot along, at peace with them. Let me read verse ten. It says, "Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." Wow! Blessed are those who have been persecuted. It just doesn't sit right in my head right off the bat. What does the word persecuted mean? It means to be abused, mistreated, or tormented. And we can think of everybody we know, and we say, well, everybody falls into that category, right? So everybody's blessed. No, the verse gives us a reason for the persecution. It says that reason is for the sake of righteousness. What is the sake of righteousness? It's not willing to partake in sin. It's speaking against sin or proclaiming the gospel in exclusivity. That That is what is righteous before God. I have been around people and probably have done it myself and just am blind to it. A lot of times we think we're being persecuted for the sake of the gospel, and really we're being persecuted or mistreated because we're obnoxious or we're offensive or we're legalistic or self-righteous in our approach. We must not just proclaim, proclaim the truth of Christ. We must deliver it in the manner that he did. I think about Christ and his disposition towards the unbelieving world, even those who would ultimately have him nailed to a cross. He stood afar and he looked at them and he wept over them. When the lost state of people weighs heavy on you, (laughs) you will ultimately deliver the gospel in a Christ-like manner. There's levels of persecution as we see in verse 11. Some mentioned there, some not. I'm going to start from the most, uh, the greatest degree of persecution and work our way backwards. And the reason I'm going to do this is because we don't suffer in the greatest degree of persecution. Right now in the States, our persecution is we might lose our job, somebody might say something mean about us, they might unfriend us on facebook whatever the deal is but much of the world suffers much greater persecution we would do well to pray for them and realize that it's by god's grace that we are not subject to that at this time and his grace in withholding that persecution from us should be another motivator to go out there and share the gospel to stand for that which is right in a loving manner jesus told his disciples before he left They say, listen, they hated me, they're going to hate you. This wasn't an emotional thing. Hate's a verb, right? They're going to actively oppose you. They're going to stand against you. He said, even in your own household, it'll happen. We see an example in the book of Acts of physical abuse. Peter and John were beaten, right, for preaching the word of God, not for where they were doing it, not for how they were doing it, but the fact that it was Christ's name that they were proclaiming and that he was the Messiah. And how did they respond to that? You can talk. They rejoiced, right? They went away like, wow, we, we got to suffer for Christ. It's just not the way that I see it. Maybe in hindsight, but at the moment I'm like, Ugh, anything but conflict. I'll just give you a gospel track and hightail it the other way. But physical abuse is sometimes greater than assault. Jimmy is uh, producing a song, had some very disturbing things in it that uh, has caused me to pray for those around the world who are being persecuted. In the tail end of 2015 in Aleppo, Syria, uh, a Muslim mob grabbed 12 believers and called upon them to publicly denounce Christianity and return to Islam. (laughs) Naturally, by God's grace, he didn't do this. Uh, The preacher's son was 12 years old. He was with them. They cut his fingertips off in order to persuade his father to recant on his claims of who Christ was. When that didn't work, they crucified four of the twelve. And when that didn't work, they took two women a few years younger than myself and they abused them. And then they beheaded the other eight altogether. We need to be grateful that we're not under persecution like that. We need to pray uh, for those who are. The more... The persecution that we're more likely to encounter, though, is social. I've spent many nights on the street in Ybor uh, preaching the gospel and handing out gospel tracts. I've never been physically uh, assaulted. The social, though, is what we are likely to experience, and that is being cut off from certain circles. Uh, Whether it's business realm, somebody might not want to enter into business with you because they know you have ethics or even from family. Without a show of hands, I'm sure, and here many have been uh, cut off, or at least not a biggest part of their family as they would have been had they had the same belief system as their family. <laughs> I saw this in one surprising way, the social disconnect because of uh, people believing in Christ. Have you all heard of the law of return It is where Israel uh, regained their ground, their state, their country, whatever you wanna call it. And in 1950, they said, listen, if you're part Jewish, you can come back here, this is a safe haven for you. You can be a citizen of this country like that, unless you believe that Jesus is God. If you're a Messianic Jew, you can come visit over here, but you can't be a citizen. Jesus, or God gave the Jews back their land And in return, they refuse to let Messianic Jews dwell among them. There's also the verbal persecution, as we see here in the passage. It says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Again, we see the reason for the persecution is not because I'm offensive. But because the word of God is offensive to those who live in darkness, it's not my disposition, but it's a convicting word of God that brings biblical persecution. We need not go into examples of that. I'm sure we all have plenty of them. So the question is how should the blessed, those who are persecuted, respond? Verse 12 tells us, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Why should we rejoice? Why should we feel or show great joy or delight? Because we have a great reward in heaven, or which is heaven. It's awesome. We're going to be with Christ eternally. I never thought myself to uh, have much uh, in similarity to a prophet, but this verse tells me that when I'm persecuted, I have one more thing like them. It says that, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I put a little smiley face so go ahead and smile. Verses, verse 13 says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Obviously, this is figurative speech. What do we know about salt? Probably a lot more than they did back then. I was reading, and they say that salt has over 14,000 uses right now. It's kind of interesting to me. Everything from water conditioning to making of industrial chemicals to getting ice off highways, paper manufacturing, agricultural uses, and so on and so on and so on. But I think this is what our Lord meant when he said you are salt. In the first century, the primary uses of salt was a seasoning, a preservative, and a disinfectant. I believe preservative is a point that he was making as it was probably the most common use. So what is a preservative? A preservative is something that keeps something from breaking down or rotting as quickly as it would. Salt rubbed into meat will keep meat from uh, going bad more quickly. How are the blessed like salt? Well, our presence slows down the moral decay of the world. Our presence slows down the moral decay of the world. I know that sounds like quite the claim and might cause us to think something of ourselves. but I have some examples. Uh, revivals, on a large scale, when there's revivals, does not the uh, culture that, in which that happens Uh, act less like the world, less destructive, less sinful. Or voting on walls when we have believers who hold political office, or even believers who are allowed to vote. The things that we vote against that are sinful helps slow down the moral decay of the world. And maybe on a very personal level, if people know that you're a believer and they can see that in your life, and when you come up to them and they're in the midst of a story, Maybe they bite their tongue. They know that what they're saying is wrong and it's offensive. In that regard, it slows down the decay of the world also. The verse says, if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? The only way I could find that salt could become made tasteless, and I don't want to go too far into this, I'm just going to tell you what salt's made of, which is sodium and chlorine. Oddly enough, both things are poisonous. Mix them together and it helps your food taste better. <laughs> only an abundance of something foreign can add salt to. Only an abundance of something foreign added can cause salt to forfeit its saltiness. If I'm going too far with this, I apologize. But your testimony can be diminished or weakened when other things start to take the place of your expression of Christ in your life. We let the world start to come in and just, uh, we get busy with our work and with a hundred other things. And the reason we're here, which is to glorify God, takes a back shelf or bottom shelf or back burner. The passage also says that salt that does not function as salt is worthless. This passage is not teaching that we can lose our salvation. The point of this metaphor is this, when we fail to function as we ought to, which is what? Proclaim the gospel, love our neighbor, express humility, show mercy, live our lives for the purpose of making God known. When we fail to function in that way, then we have lost our usefulness or effectiveness. Is this not true? We need a refresher on who we are and where our final destination is and by God's grace, we will be of use to him. The next verse reads You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Two things about light one, it can be seen, second, it makes possible to see things. Light, by nature of what it is, repels darkness. The practice of righteousness repels those who prefer darkness. If any of you can think back to your conversion and the group of friends at which you hung around, when you converted, what happened to your friends? Most of them abandon you when your light begins to shine. This is obviously not our desire, but it is often the case. We do want the devil to depart and the scripture says when we resist him with the light of god's word that he will that's good news another good reason to be a light do not try to rid yourself of him any other way it'll be an exercise of futility if you feel that the devil or his minions are giving you a hard time i suggest you combat them like jesus did with the power of scripture light Not only repels darkness, but it reveals things. What could not be seen in darkness is made clear in the light, that is God's truth. Paul attests to this in Romans 7. He said, I had not known sin but by the law. When the word of God exposed his heart to him through the showing of God's law, the light went on for Paul. The light not only reveals sin but it also reveals people's misconceptions of God, or really anything of spiritual nature. I'm sure we've all accounted, encountered rather, spiritual people, right? And their belief system was contrary to the word of God. Well, the light of God's word, and when it shines through us, uh, brings correction to that, and hopefully, hopefully conformance. The passage also says, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Imagine going into your house, turning on the lamp, and going to get a blanket and throwing it over it. There's really no point in that, right? That's not what the light's for. Jesus says, doesn't tell us that we need to be light. He says that you are light. And the absurdity of covering that light or not letting your light shine before men is absurd. So what should the blessed do with their light? Verse 16, our final verse tells us, it says, Let let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I leave you with this. Let your light shine before men. Proclaim truth in a Christlike way and live like you believe your message. To the end that men may see the goodness of God and honor and praise him as they should. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. Uh, I pray that we would all spend more time in your word, Lord. We'd see the beauty of it, the value of it. I thank you for this opportunity to speak to my church. Please help me to love them and let my light shine before them. In Christ's name, amen.